Lawyers are expensive. And if you're a lawyer, you might think that's a good thing. But today's guest says you shouldn't. We're talking today about the access to justice crisis and about whether it can be solved with AI. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So, like I said at the top, the cost of legal services is through the roof these days. And while that means attorneys, or at least some attorneys, are raking in the big bucks, it also means lots of potential clients are priced out of the market. According to today's guest, Albany Law School professor Ray Brescia, That's not just bad for business, it's also bad for society and for the rule of law in general. Brescia just published his new book, Lawyer Nation, The Past, Present, and Future of the American Legal Profession. In it, he goes into many of the dire problems plaguing the industry right now, and I talked to him about one of them, what he calls the access to justice crisis. The reason I keyed in on this topic wasn't just because of its potential impact on society at large, but also because of the potential solution Brescia proposes more and better legal tech, including, yes, AI. We'll get to how that might work in a bit, but first I asked Brescia to lay out what the access to justice crisis is and just how bad it's gotten. 80% of low-income Americans and 50% of middle-income Americans face their legal problems without a lawyer. Oftentimes, they don't even know they have a legal problem to begin with, but then they typically don't have access to a lawyer to help them resolve their legal problems. And it could be something as simple as, you know, wanting to write a a simple will or facing an eviction or facing the loss of unemployment benefits uh, that could have, you know, devastating impact on their families. So uh, the access to justice crisis is a real crisis in the United States, uh, and it's something that the legal profession really has to grapple with because one of the main reasons that we have this crisis is the high cost of legal services. What are the solutions to that? Is it just more lawyers? Do law schools need to just crank out more attorneys, uh, or is there something else? I think that there are... Uh, a sort of all of the the above uh, approach to to this problem and and that means looking at legal needs in in a different way trying to think about are there other strategies for helping people resolve their disputes address problems before they become legal disputes get uh you know some limited services if that's going to be sufficient to address their services certainly make law school more accessible and more affordable uh, allowing there to be legal I'll just use the term technicians rather than lawyers yeah, I think one of the phrases that you use in the book is commodification, that, that legal services need to be commodified. Is that what you're talking about, where it just needs to, you know, be more of a commodity and less of a this sort of bespoke specialty kind of thing? Well, I think, yes, that is one strategy is to try to make legal problems simpler to solve 
And uh, there will always be complex problems. There will always be outlier problems. But are there situations where we can create simple documents that resolve disputes? Can we make more, you know, we said before about wills, you know, simple wills that people can uh, address very easily, you know, use very easily with, with simple guidance. The way a lawyer typically goes about representing a client is the client comes into the lawyer's office or they speak by phone and the lawyer crafts a, you use the term bespoke, which I use in the, in the book, which is, you know, used in talking about legal services, you know, tailored, customized services for each client to meet their specific needs. I think we should flip that on its head a little bit and say, you know, lawyers can produce products and then assess clients for whether they're appropriate for that product. And of course, one of the big things that plays into this is technology. And it seems like you think that, you know, technology can be a big tool, if not the main tool to help us solve this, this crisis. And you divide technology into two buckets, sustaining and disruptive. Can you explain the the definitions of each of these these buckets and and why you made this distinction? Sure. So so the 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 reference to sustaining and disruptive innovation comes from the late Clayton Christensen, uh, a, a Harvard Business School professor. And think about it this way: if a lawyer uses generative AI to draft the first draft of a brief. And that allows them to serve more people because their work is more efficient. It gets done more quickly. That's a sustaining innovation, right? It, it allows the lawyer to serve more people to, to, to you know, maybe reduce their prices. If that generative AI tool is available to an individual who is not a lawyer, who can represent themselves can as as anyone is able is allowed to do and it displaces the need for a lawyer then we would think of that as a disruptive innovation so so one one type of innovation can be both sustaining and disruptive at the same time so that's the difference does it allow a lawyer to serve more people do it more efficiently do it more effect do that provide those services more effectively that's something that's sustaining existing lawyers disruptive would then be displacing lawyers uh, in their traditional role so so that's the distinction and and to and to be clear that would when you're talking about disruptive technology you're talking about uh, technologies that disrupt the legal profession disrupt lawyers not disrupt their clients it sounds like a lot of these technologies would help clients at the the cost of hurting lawyers. Oh, that's that's for sure. That uh, looking at the you know looking at that framework, uh, sustaining versus disruptive, from the lens of the the lawyer, uh, you could you could flip it on its head and say that an individual who needed a lawyer could be sustained by innovation rather than disrupted uh, if they can just use the innovation without the, the lawyer's assistance. But, but I'm really talking about it in terms of what is, its, what is a, a particular technology's impact on the legal profession? Yeah, that was another thing that you pointed out in, 
your book that I thought was really interesting is the way that technology goes from something that's used on the fringes to something that's used by some early adopters, and then eventually all the way to the point where you have to use it. You know, it's compulsory. And you also brought up the the case of Google. You know, there was at one point where lawyers could use Google. Now, if you don't do basic Google searches on your clients and your adversaries, you are a bad lawyer. That's right. And you get, you know, judicial opinions that say, you know, if you if you say, well, I didn't know where this corporation was based, uh, so I I wasn't able to serve them. And, you know, you'll see a judicial opinion that says a simple Google search would have turned up the address of the business. So at some point, you know, the technology becomes a uh, threat, a rarity, and then the standard of care. Uh, any lawyer would know the term shepherds, right? The the shepherds service, which to, to non-lawyers, it's a method by identifying whether a case you want to cite has been overruled, has been distinguished, and it, and use, there's a there were shepherds publications. They probably still make them in hard copy. Uh, and you would, you know, go through the books to shepherdize a single case. And it's a verb, right? Like to Xerox something, you shepherdize a single case. And it might take you hours to determine whether a single case has been overturned. Whereas today, you just press a button while you're doing your electronic research. You click on uh, the, you know, shepherdize, or it actually tells you right off the top. You're looking at the case as it comes in on the the interface uh, on the your electronic database, and it says whether it's been overturned using that shepherd's function. If a lawyer went into court and said, "I'm sorry, Your Honor." I was shepherdizing in the library and the librarian must have failed to restock, you know, reshelve the loose leaf version of shepherds. You know, you would A, be laughed out of court and you might be sanctioned. Is there a point where generative AI is going, you know, to use one example, is going to be the standard of care that you have to sort of start there? Uh, You know, it's possible. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much that generative AI could do. Um, There's some things that it's already doing, but I think the reason why people are so excited about it is more about what it could do, potentially. Uh, One of the things that you cite in your book about what it could potentially do is value a case. Uh, And specifically, you know, well, I'll let you explain what that means. So we, we already see that. And, and that is using the, the the sort of class of artificial intelligence called machine learning, um, where it you know predictive analytics, where it can take into account every decision, every jury ruling, every settlement that's available on a particular injury, and uh, you know assess it and make a, a, a calculated prediction as to what a, a jury made up of, you know, mem- individuals from a particular county with a particular, you know, gender, racial, professional background. You know, you can plug in all the information that, that might be available and it could generate a, a, a prediction as to, to what this jury is going to value this case at. And this is something that lawyers have to do themselves uh, and have been doing for centuries uh, all the time, where they not only have to figure out, 
you know, how much they should advise their clients to ask for, but they have to figure out, you know, whether they should even take this case. Is it even worth their time to take? And it sounds like AI could totally replace this process. Uh, that's right. And, 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 and I think it, it's already happening with, you know, judicial opinions. You know, you can have a, you know, machine learning can analyze every opinion in a district or even of a particular judge and say, okay, how is this judge likely to rule in this type of case? So that's something that lawyers have done, you know, since, you know, from time immemorial, right? That assessing, you know, what's the value of a case? What's the strength of a case? What are the relative merits of the case? And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, the, that judgment can complement what lawyers do today. And and so I, I really like the – I don't think that it can completely displace a lawyer because there are – you know, there may be a, a situation where – you know, a lawyer, you know, a particular lawyer may be stronger, may, that, that they may be really good at cross-examination. And this case is going to hinge on cross-examination. I, I really like the analogy to uh, chess matches. And so, you know, we all know that for 20 years, computers have been beating the chess masters, right? So, you know, and there have been competitions between uh, humans and, and computers in chess for, for the last 20, 25 years. Uh, and and there have now been, uh, uh, you know, fairly recently, over the last decade or so, what they call centaurs competing in these competitions, which are uh, human cyborg teams, right, where the, the, the computer is making assessments, but the human is sort of making ultimate decisions in informed by those computer assessments. And those centaur teams, more often than not, do better than the humans on their own and the computers on their own. And so I think if we start thinking about these technologies as aiding lawyers in making some of these judgments, uh, I think it's going to make for better judgments uh, at the end of the day. Finally, um, you know, I want to get a sense of whether you're optimistic uh, about the access to justice crisis and whether it will be solved. You know, a lot of it will depend on the shape that AI takes, and that's, you know, anyone's guess. But a lot of it will depend on whether the profession really wants to solve this problem. What do you think about that? Do you think that based on everything we've talked about and specifically legal tech and AI, do you think that this is going to get better or no? I think that there is a growing appreciation for the the fact that a, a significant, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Americans face their legal problems without a lawyer. I think there's a growing awareness about that. There are legal advocates, consumer advocates, uh, uh, legal scholars, uh, computer technologists who are thinking about ways to address this problem. Like, I think that there are real problems that computer technologists working with lawyers can solve um, to address the justice gap. And I think, you know, we need, uh, and I'm, I'm personally working in some of these teams 
lawyers and ethicists and computer technologists working together around this social justice issue of uh, the justice gap. And I am hopeful that, you know, regulators, judges, lawyers, technologists, ethicists can work together to try to figure out, okay, what are the types of problems that the new technologies can address as well, if not better, than a lawyer acting on his or her own? And can we use the technology to resolve those problems and leave the humans to solve the, the, the problems that require that human touch? Uh, you know, I'm, I am hopeful. Uh, I don't know that I'm optimistic that it will be solved, but I'm hopeful that there are a lot of uh, people of goodwill who really want to address this problem. And I think technology, particularly the, you know, generative AI and other new technologies are, um, you know, really poised to take off. There are a lot of problems with it, you know, the, you know, particularly, uh, you know, the issues of hallucinations uh, and we're seeing almost, you know, weekly, if not daily, new cases where lawyers are, are uh, and pro se litigants are, uh, you know, being exposed as having relied on, uh, you know, generative AI to their detriment. Uh, and I worry about uh, those real risks. We've got to solve those problems. Um, but I, I am hopeful, may, and maybe just a touch optimistic, that, that we will find some ways to provide greater access to justice to the millions of Americans who currently face their legal problems without a lawyer. All right. Well, that was the hopeful and very, very cautiously optimistic Ray Brescia, a law professor at the Albany Law School, uh, speaking with us from Albany, New York. Uh, thank you, Professor Brescia. I appreciate this. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.